Well, good morning. People will still be trickling in for a bit, and that's all right. Last night, oh, if you smell in a particular way, you might still catch the scent of the fact that there were 50 hungry men in this room just some 12 hours, 12 to 15 hours ago, feasting on ribs and potato salad and a bunch of other things. We enjoyed it very greatly, and we finished everything. No leftovers. We ate all of it. And this, these ribs, they were huge. They were so big. So if, if that's, that might be what you're smelling. And I'm so sorry, ladies, that you weren't, you weren't able to come. But I hear there's ladies' tea. That's as good, right? Men's rib dinner, ladies' tea. Come on. Just as good. Actually, somebody suggested one year we should switch it. Ladies' rib dinner, men's tea. <laughs> Don't think we're going to do that. <laughs> At least not the men's tea. <laughs> Welcome to our Sunday school. Thank you for Rod, to Roger, who filled in last week. Appreciate that. We are back on Augustine. And if you have not been following with this series, it is a multi-week series on one of the greatest church fathers of, of all of the church age. The influence of Augustine is almost impossible to really put into scope. He had a huge influence on theological development, especially in the medieval times. A lot of their theology came from Augustine. The reformers got a lot from Augustine. We can't really calculate just how impactful he has been and how God has used him. So he's one of those figures from 15, 16, 1700 years ago that we don't know much about. We just know the name. And once you start learning about these people, it humanizes them in a lot of ways. They're not just a figure in a book who wears a funny miter hat, which he never wore, by the way. They always picture him wearing this miter hat. And it's hilarious. Like, you know, those fancy pompous hats that like a priest would wear or something like that. Every book, literally one of the books I have on him has him wearing a miter hat. And I read a quote from him saying how silly it is that people wear miter hats. He thought it was so silly, and we still like paint him in that, in that light. It's pretty crazy. But we are looking at him, and the unique part about this is we do a devotional question every week that relates to our lives. How can we apply this into life today? This episode, or this uh session is called Calling in Crisis. It is the fourth one, the fourth look in his life. We are only looking at about a four to five year period of his life. You can see on the event side, in 386 he converts. We looked at that last week. That is the single greatest fact of his life, is when he came to Christ, when he converted at age 32. And so we'll get to 390, and that's where we'll cut off for today. But Calling in crisis, by the title, you can tell that we are looking at a time where he is going to go through some crises, moments, and how do you deal with them? And this is where it's incredibly relevant because we still go through crises in our lives today. How do we deal with it? What is the Christian response to suffering and the worst things that you can go through? How do you go through it? That's what we're going to be looking at. What is my calling in crisis? What do I do? in the worst times of life. So last, last time, two weeks ago, he converts. His son, Adiodatus, also converts. Um, his mother comes from Africa to where he was in Milan. He was in Milan, Italy. 
that, that is where he met Ambrose. Ambrose is the bishop of Milan. And in those days, you didn't have 30 Christian churches in one town. Like, there was one Christian church, and the bishop was the pastor to that whole city. Everybody went to that one Christian church. Very different than it is today. So he starts learning more about the scriptures and about the Christian faith through Ambrose going to his bishop in Milan. He was greatly impressed with him, took to him, and all that. So he converts. And he's now preparing for baptism. In those days, and in many places today still, to be converted and then to put off baptism was unthinkable, unheard of. Like, it wasn't even an option. Nobody did it. You convert, you prepare, you start your baptism class. No questions at all. None of this, oh, I'll wait till I'm comfortable or until, I, until there's a pastor that I like. No, no, none of that. You get baptized, you, you listen to Jesus. So he and his son, Adiodatus, in, uh, they sign up for, their, they become catechumens. That's the word for it. Basically, you have to take a catechism class. Any new convert who's about to be baptized has to take a catechism class. And so they're doing that. It's going to take a few months. They're having their baptism service at Easter. So he's got, a, he's got a few months to prepare for this. So even though the actual baptism took a few months, it, like you decide to get baptized right then and there. He goes into a type of retreat at that time, and he starts the, the beginnings of his writings that would later on define his life. So he's writing, he's getting ready for baptism, but his, in his professional life, he's still a professor of rhetoric. He had gone, remember he had went to Rome for a bit of time, but it was less than a year. He completely flaked out in Rome. His students weren't paying fees. He got sick as soon as he got there, which set him back. Never got off. Rome was a disaster for him. So he moves to Milan, and that was a career move, and he gets a great gig. He's getting paid well. His students love him. He's, he's very successful in Milan. So professionally, he's doing great. Spiritually, he's converted now. But he's starting to get this sense that teaching rhetoric might not be the rest of his life. That might not be his calling for the rest of his life. So he, he's teaching, and he starts getting this conviction that I, wa- I started doing this because I wanted to be like the great rhetoricians. I wanted to be like Cicero. I wanted the fame and the fortune. I want people to know my name. He even titled one of his very first books after a rhetorician who he had never met. It's kind of like if you're a young pastor and you name something after R.C. Sproul or something, like a great pastor or something. Like He named after a guy he never met, and very, I didn't put this in my notes, but there was a very funny comment that he made about the first thing he wrote. He wrote, I regarded it admiringly, but no one else sought to do so. <laughs> no one else liked it. It didn't sell, it didn't sell at all, but he liked it. He started feeling guilty about his profession. And the big reason why he was feeling guilty is because he was preparing people to use their tongues and to speak and to convey arguments in a certain fashion, but it was untethered from Christ. He's converted now. He's teaching people how to speak and do argumentation, but it's apart from Christianity. He's teaching non-Christians how to use a weapon, essentially, the weapon of words. And there's a whole lot of poetry about how words are more dangerous than the sword. So this is starting to convict him. And he's, wonder, he, he's, he's seeking now to leave his profession, but he's feeling guilty also because he's just leaving his students 
and he thinks he's kind of being deceitful in his leaving. Like he, he was going to do this, he signed up, he has like a type of contract, he's feeling deceitful that he's going to leave because I'm a Christian. Well, it's not against the Christian faith to teach rhetoric, to be a professor. So he's got this issue. What do, how do I leave this job, essentially? And what do you know, but right in the final couple months before the semester ends, he, he's somebody who spoke a lot, hours upon hours of speaking and teaching. He starts getting this pain in his chest, in his lungs. He couldn't go very long anymore before he got this crippling pain and couldn't speak anymore. The breath wasn't coming, and this started appearing in his classes. He, he writes about this in Confessions. It's not like he's making this up. It was all of a sudden he starts getting all this pain when he talks for too long. And this condition took months before it healed. So it, the, the, the bosses or whatever, they see that this is becoming an issue. And he essentially is given leave from his job for medical reasons. And he leaves professorship. His voice was dying out. It took months before it got better. But it gave him a legitimate medical reason to leave the industry. So what we're seeing is his desires have started to change. Um, what he wants is changing. How he wants to use his gifts is changing. And we talked a couple weeks ago about that's one of the marks of somebody who truly converts. They no longer look to use everything in their life to direct it for them, your, for yourself, your own advancement, your own fame and glory. You start wanting to use your gifts for something greater. How can I use this for Christ's kingdom? How can I serve him with my gifts, not just serve myself and enrich myself? So his, his desires are changing. He's guilty about leaving the professorship. Get, the Lord gives him this medical reason to leave. But we can call this somewhat the first crisis that he went through since becoming a Christian. The crisis of job loss. He's a little bit different because he didn't lose his job in a recession or lose it for poor performance or anything like that. But many of us can relate to the fear that goes into job loss. You're, you're scared you might lose your job. How am I going to provide for my family? Or you actually did lose your job. And there's a lot more relation to that over the past couple years where some people, out of, for convictional reasons, lost their jobs. This is a legitimate thing that many people go through that, that brings crisis into your life. What do you do when I lose my job? How do I trust God when my way of taking care of my family is gone? It's taken from me. What do you do? What do you do in crisis? We'll answer those questions as we go on. Now his son, Adiodatus, I think we, I mentioned before, Adiodatus literally means given by God. He gave him that name when he wasn't even a Christian yet. He gives, I, th I think that's fascinating. But Adiodatus is with him. He converts with him. He's also a catechumen taking these catechism classes. And he had, Augustine loved his son. He had this to say. This is a quote. Thou hadst made him, of him a noble lad. He was barely 15 years old. But his intelligence excelled that of many grave and learned men. I confess to thee thy gifts. O Lord my God, creator of all, who has power to reform our deformities, for there was nothing of me in that boy but the sin. He, he loved his son. His son, was, he thought, was, showed greater intelligence, was a better person to be around, had more character. The only thing that Augustine gave him was the sin that we all inherit from our parents. 
So he had many good things to say about his boy. So he leaves the, the industry, but he had some money. He was, so that's why he goes into this retreat during his catechism times. He, gets, he starts writing because he's no longer working in that job. And he, he had some money still from his father's estate. His father had died some eight, 16, 17 years prior. So he, he, they had money in the family. His mother had left Africa looking for him and eventually found him in Milan. So she was there when he converted, and that was such an answer to prayer for her. So they go through the classes. They get baptized together. Monica's, his mother, super excited. Prayer answered. And now they're deciding that they're going to go back to Africa. Here we are in Italy, in Milan. He's converted. He's left the professorship. So he converts, and in 387... Uh, or they're, they're thinking about moving back to, back to Africa. I'll fill that in in a second. They're going to go back. However, so you start leaving, kind of like going to an airport. Certain cities have airports. If you don't live in a city with an airport, you have to go there and wait there in the terminal for a few hours before you get it. Well, they don't have airplanes. So he leaves Milan. They go to a, a little coastal town called Ostia. It's in Italy. And they're waiting for a boat. This boat is going to take them back to North Africa. Now, you're not just waiting two, three hours to board your plane. You want to know how long you have to wait for a boat? Months. You have to wait months. Like, this is just common back then. You're just going to chill there until the boat comes. And that's, deal with it is kind of what you have to do. So the three of them are sitting in Ostia for months waiting for this boat to come. During this, now that gives him time. Roger and I like to joke about all the books that we have. Like, we need to go to jail already. It'll force us to read all these books that we have. Give us the time to do it. it he gets the time. He's in Ostia. He's got to wait for months for this boat. So he gets to writing. And he does a lot of excellent writing. While they're in this waiting period for the boat, Monica gets sick. And she's been sick before. You caught lots of sicknesses back then. Even Augustine got sick. He got sick in Rome. He recovered. One of his best friends had gotten sick when he was studying but died. You know, it, it's not, it's not a, a flippant thing. You can recover, but eh, she's getting a little up there in age, and she gets sick. She's laying in bed. This is a more serious fever that she seems to have. Augustine was starting to get anxious. She didn't just instantly bounce back. She wasn't recovering. She's in bed. She wakes up, though, and she gets her senses back and she and him start talking they're reminiscing of old times old memories they're having a laugh and then the, the pain strikes her you know you're all of a sudden you're good and then you get a reminder of the pain the pain comes back it's starting to overtake her and she says son for myself i no longer have any pleasure in anything in this life now that my hopes in this world are satisfied I do not know what more I want here or why I am here. There is indeed one thing for which I wish to, to wait a little in this life, and that was that I might see you a Christian before I died. My God has answered that more than abundantly. What more am I to do here? Start speaking that way. She has seen her husband, who was pagan for mo the majority of their marriage. He converted on his deathbed. She has seen her son, Augustine, pagan for 32 years, convert to the Lord, and her grandson, Adiodatus, as a 15-year-old, come to the Lord. She has seen the most important relationships in her life. Those people convert. Her greatest prayers have been answered. Now she's really sick. What more is there for me here? 
What do I have to do now? Crisis is setting in for him. It's a few days later. She's still not getting better. She's hanging on, but very ill. And once again, she gets a, a wake-up moment. She wakes up, and then she says something surprising. There, culturally, where you bury a body was sort of a big deal, and there were a lot of mystical and spiritual realities attached to where you're buried. Uh, if you look at old ancient cultures, how they treated the dead and what all the rituals that were attached to that, it's very mystical and paganistic, and, uh, and those things were not absent even within the time of Monica. Now, she was not super mystical about the whole thing, but she had spoken before that she wanted to be, wanted to be buried next to her husband. He was dead in North Africa. She wanted to be buried there. But you're not in Africa. You're in Ostia, Italy. That's a long boat ride carrying this body. Think of the decay that can happen in that time too. That's not easy to do. So she had spoken before about being buried back in Africa, but now she said, and her, her language is starting to get shorter, lay this body anywhere. Lay this body anywhere. Now, she's not being trite. This isn't just like, I give up. I, I'm so done with everything. I'm done. That, that's not the attitude here. Lay this body anywhere was connected to the next thing that she was going to say. She believed God's power to raise the body at the end of the age was not tied to where your body was. She said this, I don't fear that at the end of time he should not know the place where he is to resurrect me. He knows where I'm going to be. It doesn't matter if I'm in Italy, I'm in the Middle East, I'm in North America, I'm in Japan. It doesn't matter. My body will be in the ground. He will resurrect me. He knows where I am. So it's actually a matter of faith for her, a matter of trust in God, getting away from the mysticism and the superstition that was attached to burial. And then a couple days after that, Augustine says this, and so on the ninth day of her sickness, in the 56th year of her life, and the 33rd of mine, that religious and devout soul was set loose from the body. And Monica passes away. She dies there in Ostia. 56 was a long, longer life back then. Uh, it wasn't all that common that you could reach that age. So she passes away. Her death greatly impacted Augustine. Oh, so we'll fill in our little chart here. The death of Monica. Monica, his mother. That's the next crisis that he goes through. This greatly impacted both him and Adiodatus, her grandson. Sadness abounded. There, now, both of them were, were weeping. And there were people there who comforted Adiodatus. But Augustine was a little more, he kind of retreated. He, we all handle... <coughs> these types of things a little bit differently, many of us. It's not the exact same. His son received the comfort of others, and they surrounded him, and that was great for him. But Augustine took a step back, and he went to a more private place to deal with, to deal with his uh, sadness about this. But he was so caught off guard by how, much, how sad he was about this. Why was he getting so much grief? She's a believer. She knows the Lord. She's lived a good life. Why, why, why is there no joy? But he's just upset. He's really upset about this. And he begins chastising himself as to why he is so hurt when God had been so faithful in the family. Why was this affecting him so much? 
At the house, they break into singing psalms. That was a very common practice. You would put music to the psalms. They were written as songs. So the psalms that we see in our Bible are meant to be sung. And so that's what they started doing. They were singing psalms in the house. But his sadness didn't go away. Eventually they, or not eventually, pretty quickly, they buried her in Italy. And it did take some time, but he pulled himself together. How? We're going to ask again when it comes to job loss. What is your calling in crisis? What do you do? How do you get through it? Well, there's a psalm for that. They may, maybe they sang this psalm in that house. But in Psalm 119, 49 to 50, I wonder if he read this. Psalm 119, 49 and 50 says this. Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. I'll read 50 again. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So there are promises from God that he will preserve you, that he, you persevere to the end in the faith if you are his. That at the end of the age, he will... He will raise you from the dead. You'll be given a new body in glory, and we will be with each other again. That is a promise from God that doesn't go away based on the circumstances of your death. If you can trust in the promise that God gives, you're starting to get into the right place you're of getting comfort in your affliction. So I'm going to say, for number one, what is your calling in crisis? Go to the Lord. You don't need a PhD to get that answer. But go to the Lord is always number one. In a, I think of how does the world get through, how do non-Christians get through crisis? How do they get through the hardest times in life? I think in many ways, there's a lot of different answers to that. But one thing we do is we medicate. I medicate in various ways. We just seek to treat the, the symptoms and don't get deeper than that. We'll medicate by the bottle, alcohol. Numb it out. Try to forget about it. That's how we get through. We'll medicate by seeing our doctor and being prescribed another round of pills that we'll be on for the rest of our lives. We medicate it away. We'll medicate it away by looking for comfort in other men or women. There's a lot of different ways that we try to get through these things, but the world and those who don't know Christ try to medicate it through just feed my flesh. Just fix this. Fix this. And you put your faith in something else. The Christian goes to the Lord first, not to something else. You go to the Lord. So he started pulling himself together. After her death, he, they actually delay their travel. So they were going to go back to North Africa. They're waiting for months for this boat. But what? he's kind of in this transition time. Where do I go now? His parents have passed away. He doesn't have any family in North Africa anymore. He doesn't have his job in Italy anymore. He's in this weird transition time. He's got, it's him and his son. And so they delay. He begins more writings. And now he's writing against the Manichaeans. And that's very interesting. The very religion that had him so enslaved for nine years is the first polemic that he starts doing. A polemic is the opposite of apologetics. Apologetics is like a defense of your faith. 
polemics is going on the offense. You go after the other worldview or the other philosophy or religion. He starts writing polemically against the Manichaeans. And who better to write against the Manichaeans and expose their hypocrisy, expose the shaky foundation of their philosophy than Augustine himself, who was so devoted and had such a, has such a brilliant mind for these things. So he begins writing against the Manichaeans. But they're still pledged to go back to North Africa. They're just delaying it for a little bit of time. At this point, they do finally, it's 388, okay, they'll fill this in, moves to Africa. He goes back to Africa. This 387 here was supposed to be Monica dies. So in 388, he moves back to Africa. He goes to his hometown where he was born, Tagast. Uh, he goes there and he's there and to Carthage, the two places that he spent a lot of his time. And he began finding everybody who he had ever tried to convert to Manichaeism and repented before them that he ever did it. And said, I'm so sorry that I did this. This was wrong. I was foolish. This is false. And shared the gospel with them. I've heard of another pastor who did this one time well before he was a pastor. He converted right after his graduation in grade 12. Right after high school is when he comes to the Lord. And he is ridden with like, I have so many classmates who don't know the Lord. He opened up the yearbook that he just got from after graduation. He called every single person from that yearbook and said, I am sorry, this is, this is the gospel. Now, he wasn't teaching them Manichaeism. But that type of devotion that especially new converts get, we sometimes miss that, if, especially if you're raised in the church. You're always around it. I love the zeal and devotion that a new convert has. It's, I'm all out for the Lord. I'll go anywhere. I'll say anything he wants me to say. I just love that devotion that you can see from new converts. However, or eh, we'll say one more positive thing first before we get to more crisis. So he tried to make amends to everybody that he misled with Manichaeism, and he started establishing a monastic community, monastic monks. Uh, you, you live together as unmarried people who just, you pool your resources if need be, you take care of one another, you're involved with writing and, and ministry type work. Like think of basically what you think of when you think of a monk. He had already decided that he was going to be celibate for the rest of his life. He has put off marriage. Did I tell you who the marriage option was presented to him a couple weeks ago? Uh, he had, had the mistress, obviously, the mother of Adiodatus. She was sent away. Um, and then his mother tried to find him a suitable wife. Did I tell you this? Yeah. Okay, yeah, because she was, she was 10 years old. And that was not, like, you know, a criminal thing or anything back then. But for good reason, he was not excited about that prospect and turned it down. And so he decided he was going to be celibate and unmarried for the rest of his life. And so it was natural for him to start a monastery with friends. He, some of his best friends were married, and he was trying to convince these people to come to his monastery with him. And he writes about this. He's like, but some of my friends, their wives weren't too happy about the suggestion. <laughs> and so it didn't work. He, he didn't get his, his monastery. But he's writing a lot. But crisis is coming again. It's just around the corner. Now, Monica lasted nine days with her fever, where it got intense. 
Adiodatus is 17 years old. He catches sickness and within a couple days dies. 17. He was about the same age that Augustine was when Adiodatus was born. He was 17. Adiodatus gets to 17, quickly catches fever in North Africa, and is dead within a couple days. That's crisis number three, the death of Adiodatus. Try to put yourself in Augustine's shoes. Your father's been dead for nearly 20 years. Your mother has died. You don't have a job, and now your son dies. Who does he have? All he has is his faith. All he has is the Lord. He doesn't even have his job anymore. His friends won't join his monastery for some reason. But uh, now his son is dead. He has no wife, no father, no mother, now no son. But this time, it's been about two years since Monica passed away. Uh, not quite, but almost two years. I'll fill this in here. Adiodatus dies. Those are the two big things of 388. He's learned a few things about grief since then. And this one didn't affect him as much as Monica. Now, we might think, oh, did he just not care about his son as much? No, not at all. We heard how he spoke about his son. He loved his son. But his faith was stronger now. His faith was greater. He knew, what is my calling in crisis now? Not only did he go to the Lord, but number two, our calling in crisis, fix our perspective. After you go to the Lord, you get your perspective fixed. Is the person who died a lost soul forever? His son converted. His son was baptized. His son knew the Lord. He actually had this to say about his boy. Or Before I get to that quote, here's another thing that he said about his son. There is a book of mine entitled De Magistro. It is a dialogue between Adiodatus and me. And thou knowest all things there put into the mouth of my interlocutor, that is his boy, are his. Though he was then only in his 16th year, many other gifts, even more wonderful, I found in him. His talent was a source of awe to me. And who but thou couldst be the worker of such marvels? And thou didst quickly remove his life from the earth. And even now I recall him to mind with a sense of security because I fear nothing for his childhood or youth, nor for his whole career. We took him for our companion, as if he were in the same age of grace with ourselves, to be trained with ourselves in your discipline. And so we were baptized, and the anxiety about our past life left us. That was just a reflection he had about his boy. He didn't, the Lord quickly took him from this life, but he knew, I'll be with him again. I'll be with my mother again. I'll be with my son again in glory. He will raise him. He knows where Monica is. He certainly knows where Adiodatus is as well. So he goes and he fixes his perspective. If you still have Psalm 119 open, there's something very encouraging there. In verse 71 and 72. Try being somebody who is facing death in the family, job loss, lack of direction, all, these, all the temptations of the world are still there. 
you wonder, why do you allow me, why do you allow this God? Psalm 119, 71, 72. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. How do you get that type of perspective? Now, we're not saying, oh, it's a marvelous thing. I wish like, my children would be taken by God young. Like, No, that's not what they're saying at all. But when affliction does come, you understand that the Lord is still doing things in the midst of it. The writer of this learned God's statutes in a deeper and real way when he got afflicted. He went to the Lord and his perspective got fixed. This isn't the end of life. This isn't the end of time. There's more to the story here. Now, we would be remiss not to think about Job as well. Of course, he's the classic example. And Job has his wife taken from him, his kids, his house, his animals, his livestock. All these things are taken from him. Satan then asks for the ability to affect his own body. God grants it. And now he gets sores and boils all over him. He's got his piece of pottery that he's scratching the boils off of his skin with. Like The guy's a mess. His friends give him horrible advice that gets progressively worse over time. His own, um, he was even told, curse God and die, was what he was told. Like, horrible time. And God is silent for a long time in Job until you get to the end when he finally answers. And it comes along the lines of, were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, O oh man, since you are so wise, where were you when I put Orion in the sky? When I laid everything in its ornaments and formations and firmaments, and Job is silenced. He, I cannot reply, for I know that you are wise over all things. What do you, when the Lord comes and, it puts you in your place, essentially. There's no response. You cast your trust and faith to him. He is working. Job, you don't get it, what I'm doing here. It's the same thing with Augustine. He starts. He has an idea about grief now. God is working his purposes despite the crisis, actually even using the crisis for his purposes. So he learned a godly perspective of suffering and loss. But not only that, the final thing, the final calling in crisis, after you go to the Lord, you fix your perspective, get to work. What a lot of men do when they go through very hard times, they throw themselves into their work. They become workaholics. And getting value out of your work is a very good thing. We are supposed to work. It's part of the calling. But if you don't have that tethered, to a godly perspective that is filtered through your trust and faith in the Lord, then you're just getting to, like you're getting the end of the line. You're not starting at the beginning where you're supposed to, to get the real power in how work can be a means of getting through crisis. That really comes through the power of the Lord who gives you that command, who gives you dominion over the earth, who gives you a job to do. He got to work. He starts writing. He starts visiting all these people. He tries again with the monastery eventually. But he's getting to work, and you have to work. You can't just sit there, stay in your home, can't get up, can't. Eventually, you've got to get back to work. And you won't necessarily get there unless you go to the Lord first and fix your perspective. So he's learned a thing or two about suffering. He's learned that God gives and takes away. The book of Ecclesiastes has something very interesting to say. It says... The day you die is better than the day you were born. 
That can sound so foreign to us. The day you die is better than the day you were born. Because the day you die is the day you're in glory with the Lord. The day the suffering ends. The day the sin ends. Are you sick of the sin yet? I heard one sister of this church say, I'm so sick of my sin. How I'm still sinning. I'm so sick of it. The day you die is the day that sin stops for you. If you are in the Lord. Jesus tells us to fear the one who has power over death and Hades, who can destroy both body and soul, not just the one who can destroy the body. Adiodatus' soul was safe in Christ. He, so what Augustine did, he went to the Lord, fixed his perspective, he went to work. Now, interestingly, this is where Confessions, the, the big work that he wrote, this is where Confessions ends as an autobiography. He talks about other things, but they're like intellectual, philosophical, scriptural, religious. But this whole time, he has been writing an autobiography about the events of his life. After Adiodatus dies, and he says those couple comments that I wrote, he no longer writes anymore in the autobiography part. We don't know why. He doesn't say why. But he doesn't write. The Confessions ends there as an autobiography. I think that's fascinating. Now, in 390 and 391... We're going a couple years later. He decides to go on a vacation. And, you know, where do you like to go when you go to vacation? Find me a beach. Find, you know, find me somewhere nice and warm and, and comfortable. He decides to go to a kind of coastal retreat town called Hippo. Hippo Regis, up along the coast of North Africa. Uh, it's not Hippo Regis today, but there is still a community there. You can still see the ruins of Hippo. He decides that he's going to go on vacation for a bit and go to Hippo. He goes to the church. Remember, you all go to the one Christian church in the town. He goes to the church and he meets a bishop named Valerius. And it turned out that Valerius needed a new assistant. We'll look into that next week. 